We are going to be continuing in Mark. So if you've got your Bibles, either physically or on your phones, and you want to get uh, flipped over or clicked over uh, to Mark chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 25, that's what we are going to be covering this afternoon. This afternoon and next week, we're going to be covering uh, four parables, which are, uh, for Mark's gospel, some of the most concentrated teaching of Jesus that we get. Uh, so we'll do two weeks covering four parables of word. And then in the following two weeks, as we round out our uh, time in Mark before uh, having guest preachers in for the summer in August, uh, we will cover four parables of deed. So two Two parables of word today, two parables of word next week, and then the following two weeks will be two parables of deed and then two parables of deed as Jesus continues to instruct his disciples then in the first century and us, his disciples now, in what life in the kingdom living as a disciple of Jesus looks like. Anyone in here a fan of Jimmy Fallon show to one degree or another? Um, anybody not really a fan of the show, but you watch some of the videos that inevitably, like Jimmy Fallon shows up on your Facebook timeline uh, frequently, like all the time. That, that's what I mean by frequently. Um, one of my favorite bits is that he will occasionally do a thing where he will tweet out a hashtag, and then he asks people to respond to whatever that hashtag is. And my favorite hashtag that he's ever done is misheard song lyrics. And he, so he tweets out this hashtag misheard song lyrics, and then people start responding with either lyrics that they've misheard or someone in their own family has misheard. And I know that there are a couple of them that you could uh, look up, preferably not while I'm preaching, but later, um, and watch for a good laugh. But my, my two favorite from both videos are from the first one he ever did. And the first one was someone who had responded with a hashtag misheard song lyrics, and they had heard the opening to the circle of life in Lion King as singing out Pennsylvania. Now, if you hear that in your, I'm not going to sing it, but if you hear that in your head, you know that that's funny. Maybe I'll try, Pennsylvania, like that, that's not what they're saying, but that's what this poor person thought they heard. And the second one, um, if you're a fan of older uh, British rock, was Start Me Up by the Rolling Stones. This person tweeted in that they heard, you know, the, it starts with that hit, you know, Start me up. They heard it as in Yugoslavia, you'll never starve, which is fantastic. But now here's the scientific proof. If you go watch the live action release of Lion King in theaters in just under two weeks, or you happen to hear or look up Rolling Stones, Start Me Up, you will sing either Pennsylvania in your mind or you will sing in Yugoslavia, you'll never starve. And it makes hearing those songs infinitely more entertaining. And maybe you've got your own story of a song lyric that you misheard for a really long time and then you only recently, maybe in the past month or year or so, have found out that for as long as you can remember, you've been singing an incorrect lyric. Now we can laugh off missinging song lyrics. Like it's not, it doesn't greatly impact my life to one degree or another if I understand or rightly say all of the song lyrics of the songs that I hear, as long as I don't say something that's really sinful or bad in my mishearing. But it's usually not a big deal if we mishear a song lyric. But if we mishear what Jesus is going to teach us in the parables, we run the risk of not fully understanding the truths of the kingdom and what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the middle of a world that is marred by sin and passing away each day. To get the parables of Jesus wrong is no laughing matter. At the end of our life, we want to look back 
over all of our life, if by God's grace we get the chance to realize our life is drawing to a close, if we could look back over it, my prayer for each of us is that we would not look back with regret, but with joyful gratitude at lives lived in service to Jesus and the kingdom of God. And part of how we understand how to live out that life of joyful gratitude and service is by rightly understanding the parables that Jesus taught. And so we're going to be in two of those tonight. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that we have your word. We are grateful that we have the truth that you have given to us in language that we can understand. But it even though it's language that we can read off of a page, even though it is words that make sense to us in our minds, there is still the opportunity, there is still the chance, sinful as we are, that we would read and still miss here what you're trying to teach us. And so we need the help of the Spirit living in us. The same Spirit that inspired these words to be recorded is the Spirit that lives in us. And so our first plea is for the Spirit to help us understand the words of the scriptures. And Father, we are also grateful for all the many different resources we have available to help us better understand the scriptures and commentaries and men and women who have given their lives to helping those of us who want to love and follow you have a better understanding of what your word says. So would we be good stewards of the gift of your word to us? And will we allow your word to stir our affections in love and in gratitude and in appreciation and worship for who Christ is and for what Christ has done. And then will we go out and live as disciples on mission. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to read all of this because it's a little bit of a lengthier passage, and then we're going to come back to it a little bit at a time. Um, but that way I'm not reading big chunks later in the sermon. This is what Mark records for us beginning in Mark 4, verse 1, going through verse 25. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So they got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For, the t- for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We're going to back up and we're going to go Mark 4, 1 through 9, and then 21 through 25, and then come back and pick up uh, verses 10 through 20. So looking back at Mark 4, 1 through 9, Jesus finally uses the boat that he's had on standby throughout his teaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. As the crowd grows, Jesus pushes out off of the shore and begins to teach. Jesus continues the use of parables to teach. It was at the end of chapter 3 that he started to teach in parables. And he delivers the parable of parables to the waiting crowd. Now, perhaps like me, you've wondered, Jesus did not have a PA system. If there are thousands of people, how did he tell, how did his message get out, right? Like my immediate thought was, well, maybe he had something similar to the Amplify charm from Harry Potter, and he just like put something right there and amplified his voice, and that's how he spoke. But more than likely, with where his ministry occurred, there was a naturally occurring amphitheater that was tucked into a side of the Sea of Galilee. And if he would have pushed off the boat from near there and gone over in that direction, it would have given space for thousands of people to stand. And in a normal speaking voice, with the way that the Sea of Galilee had kind of formed this natural amphitheater, you could speak in a normal voice and thousands would be able to hear you without question. And so more than likely, that's where Jesus does this teaching from the boat. And what is it that Jesus tells them about? Jesus tells of a farmer who goes out to scatter seed on his property. As the farmer walks, he just indiscriminately scatters seed with no regard for where it falls. During the first century, it wasn't uncommon for a farmer to plant on every available piece of land he had due to the need for the crops to both sustain his family physically and in some cases to provide for his family financially. The seed that fell along the path is quickly devoured by the birds. The seed on the rocky soil immediately shows promise by springing up through the ground. The life is short-lived as the lack of a root system brings about its demise once it's exposed to the sun. The seed in among the thorns grows up, but it is no match for the thorns which choke the life out of the plant and render it unable to produce grain. The seed is unsuccessfully sown in three out of four soils, and it appears at this point that the farmer has been rather wasteful and negligent in his duties. In the first century, it wasn't like you could just go to Lowe's and keep buying stuff if you messed it up the first time. It wasn't like, oh, well, we planted this and it died. Let's just go get more. There wasn't this year-round availability of produce if you were sowing seed that was meant to feed your family. It wasn't, well, man, that tomato plant really didn't go. The good news is we can go buy a whole crate of them at Costco for like two bucks. Everything then in the first century You would plant seed in whatever area was available, but you also wanted to make sure you planted the seed where it had the best chance to produce. Because if you missed, if you got it in the wrong spot, 
you not only endangered your own family's perhaps chance of survival for the immediate future, but it could have long-term ramifications for the sustainability of your family. If you had sown seed, and like this farmer, three out of the four soils produce nothing. This is how I farm. This is why I don't farm, I should say. If you come to our house, like we're struggling right now to keep one tomato plant alive. It is a struggle. If you look at our landscaping, we just don't do farming or horticulture or any of this stuff well. I, would, I could vibe with the first three ways that the seed produces. But it is the final soil, the good soil, that produces a bumper crop that more than compensates for the lack of the other three soils. This crop would have provided not only for the farmer, but for many, many others. Jesus closes this parable by calling those who have ears to hear to hear what he is saying. It is a blunt ending that leaves both the reader of Mark's gospel and those standing on the shore looking around, murmuring among one another, asking what all of this could possibly mean. And we're all familiar with this parable to one degree or another. Even if we've not been to church in a long time, if we were to go back to church and hear this, we kind of immediately know what the end result or what the three of the four interpretations of the failed seed are. But Jesus doesn't give an immediate explanation. And in Mark 10 through 20, which we're going to come back to, it's actually later in that same day. So right after he finishes the parable of the sower, he actually launches in to this kind of cryptic talk about what a lamp is and what you would do with a lamp that had just been lit. And so in verses 21 through 25, Jesus says to those around still standing before him that you wouldn't light a lamp meant to provide illumination to everyone in the house and then hide it under a basket or bed where the light would be obscured or hidden and not do what it was intended to do, which was to give light. Rather, you would place the lamp on a stand, elevating the light so that it could expose what was hidden and bring light to what was in the shadows. Then, on what feels like a completely unrelated note, Jesus talks about the need for those listening to his teaching to pay attention to what they hear. On the one hand, there are those who will have even more added to what they already possess. And on the other hand, there are those who will eventually lose even the little that they do have. Needless to say, this section of teaching seems disjointed and unrelated to our natural ears if we are left to ourselves. Thankfully, we are not left to ourselves, and Jesus helps us begin to understand exactly what he is teaching. Before we back up and look at why Jesus taught in parables in the first place and unpack the meaning of the parable of the sower and the teaching about the lamp, we need to have just a brief pause, and we need to go over what makes a biblical parable a parable. Because this is going to prove key in how we understand and rightly interpret Jesus' teaching. Now, if I'm honest most of our, and maybe this is true for you, most of our understanding of the parables plays out more like the old school game of telephone. You know that game where you sit in a circle and one person says something and then it just gets passed down and then it gets to the person just before the first person that said it and they just blurt out whatever made it to them. And a lot of our understanding of Jesus' parables, we've just taken what we've heard taught 
not further examined it, not wrestled with where it fits in the context of Jesus' teaching. And so we've just accepted what someone has told us about the parable without really digging into or understanding even maybe what the purpose of the parables in Jesus' ministry was. And so I want to unpack for you 11 characteristics, and I'm not, this won't be long, I'm just going to read them off, but Klein Snodgrass, who, let's just be honest, that's a great name. Like, if you're going to write books about the Bible, you need a name like Klein Snodgrass. That's just fantastic. He wrote a book called Stories with Intent, and he gives the following breakdown of Jesus' parables that I think will prove helpful today and in the week's ahead as we unpack these parables of Jesus, or even if you go back to study them on your own. These are the 11 characteristics he gives of Jesus' parables. First, Jesus' parables are, first of all, brief and even terse. They are not novels. They are very short. Parables, number two, parables are marked by simplicity and symmetry. Number three, Jesus' parables focus mostly on humans. They mirror the commonness of first-century Palestinian human life. Four, the parables are fictional descriptions taken from everyday life, but they do not necessarily portray everyday events. Number five, parables are engaging. They were told to create interest, and various schemes are used to draw hearers in and compel dealing with the issues at hand. Number six, since they frequently seek to reorient thought and behavior in keeping with Jesus' teaching elsewhere, parables often contain elements of reversal. Number seven, with their intent to bring about response and elements like reversal, the crucial matter of parables is usually at the end. Number eight, and this begins to help us unpack some of maybe how we've misheard or misinterpreted Jesus' parables in our own life. Eight, parables are told into a context. Unlike Aesop's fables, which is where most of us are probably initially introduced to a parable, unlike Aesop's fables, Jesus' parables are not general stories with universal truths. And that's how most of us think of Jesus' Parables. We think of them more in line with Aesop's fables and less in line with the biblically how Jesus uses parables in his ministry. Number nine, this is the other big one, at least it was for me and probably will be for you. Jesus' parables are theocentric and have everything to do with God's kingdom. Most of my understanding growing up of the parables of Jesus is that they were not theocentric, they were man-centered that everything about the, par the parables had to do with me. But as we begin this week to unpack them, you're going to see that Jesus' intent in telling the parables is not to move man into the center spot of his teaching, but it is to find another way to bring men and women to a point where they have to reckon with the kingdom of God. Number 10, parables frequently allude to Old Testament text. And number 11, most parables appear in larger collections of parables. It is rare that you find a parable sitting off by itself. Usually the parables will come in large chunks of Jesus' teaching. And I would add a twelfth one, if, if I may. Every mention of a tool or a setting, everything mentioned in a parable does not have to have significance or meaning. 
And so if you're not careful, you can over-allegorize what Jesus is teaching in the parables, and you can assign meaning where Jesus himself never intended meaning. And you can begin to actually subtract from the true meaning of what Jesus was teaching if you start to search for and add meaning where there was never an intended meaning to be added. And there are great men of faith who have fallen into this trap of over-allegorizing the faith or over-allegorizing the stories that Jesus taught. And so I would just say another way to help read and understand the parables well is to not, you don't have to assign meaning to everything. Allow what Jesus teaches and what Jesus says has meaning to be what has meaning and then do the hard work of wrestling with understanding that. And so this is all setting us up for understanding the why of Jesus using parables and then understanding the parable of the sower and the parable of the lamp. In Mark 10 through 20, coming out of telling us about the parable of the sower, Mark shifts to a time later on in the day. Mark 10 says, when he was alone, meaning Jesus with those around him and with the 12. They're now alone and they're more than likely back in Peter's home. And at some juncture through the meal and through discussing the day that had just happened, some of those present begin to raise the question of the full meaning of all the parables that Jesus had been using. Does Jesus launch immediately into explaining the parables? No. He begins by explaining how his disciples will be able to understand the parables and follows up with why he teaches in parables in the first place. So Jesus says that the disciples and those close to him have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And so the first thing we see is that the ability to understand the secret of the kingdom of God is a gift of faith by grace. This secret of the kingdom is not something the disciples were meant to obtain on their own, either through works or by growing in worldly wisdom. Jesus says, and it is true for us, you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. If you are in here tonight and you have trusted Christ and you are a believer, it is because God gave you the gift of faith by grace. Man alone in his natural state with his natural faculties will never be able to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God unless we are given the gift of the ability to believe. So what exactly does Jesus mean by the secrets of the kingdom of God? C.E.B. Cranfield says, The secret of the kingdom of God is the secret of the person of Jesus. In other words, Jesus' life and mission is the secret. So then when we hear that we've been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, it isn't something that we can never know, but it is a person to spend time with, to learn from, to submit to, and to follow as a faithful disciple. As such, the disciples then and us now should be humbled by the fact that we can know the secret of the kingdom of God because God gave us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to perceive. So when Jesus says it's been given to you to know the secret of the kingdom of God, he's saying it's been given to you to rightly understand me, who I am and what my mission is. And so we don't deal or traffic in special knowledge like in the 
back at the beginning ages of the church when they dealt with Gnosticism or even today with Enlightenment, Eastern Enlightenment and all these different things. We don't traffic in secret knowledge. We don't traffic in or we don't pursue something that can't be known. When we pursue the secret of the kingdom of God, we're pursuing the person and work of Jesus to fully understand its implications for our own life and for the world. And so Jesus says, it's been given to you as a gift. But to everyone else, the parables are a source of confusion and ultimately, in some cases, condemnation. Notice what Jesus says. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is Jesus quoting from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And I guarantee if you went to a college ministry at any point in your collegiate career or you went to youth group, you heard a very impassioned speech about Isaiah answering the call of God. Who is there who will go for us and who can we send? And Isaiah says, here am I, God, send me. Anybody heard that sermon preached about the call to missions, the call to go? And then God follows that up by saying, in the words of Matt Chandler, now go spit in the wind. Because everything you're going to do is going to be met not with acceptance, but with widespread rejection. When Isaiah answers the call of God to be a prophet to the people of God, he warns him that more often than not, you're going to be met with rejection. And Jesus says that his ministry will be in line with the prophets of old and it will lead to many rejecting the kingdom and being found on the outside when all along they thought of themselves as insiders. So often when we think about the parables or we've heard other people talk to us about the parables or maybe even when we've talked to others about the parables, we've talked of them as these pictures that give a window into the kingdom. But the way that Jesus sets up his use of parables in his ministry is that it's not primarily a means of looking in on the kingdom so much as it is a mean to keep out the outsiders. But this does not set a hard, fast dividing line between the insiders and outsiders. The dividing line between those who would be an insider or an outsider as it relates to Jesus, the barrier between the two is permeable. People can pass from being insiders to being outsiders, and outsiders go to being insiders. All you have to think about is those who were outsiders who've already moved to insiders in Mark's gospel, such as the man delivered from demon oppression, or those who Jesus has healed and restored. And there are, we know, insiders who will become outsiders. Mark tells us that at the end of the calling of the twelve, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Judas was in the room and heard it. Judas was given an understanding into what the secret of the kingdom of God was and ultimately found himself an outsider. So what do we do with the teaching of Jesus? How do we maintain, how do we know that we are an insider? How do we guard against the natural bent in our sinfulness to drift to wanting to be an outsider? I think as we unpack the parables this week and next week, you get a better understanding of how we do that. So let's dig in to the parables. What do they 
mean? I think if we were to just have like an open mic and I were to call you each up, we would all probably get something close to the parable of the sower in in common with one another. Like we would all explain it and we would all probably have heard it taught as the parable of the sower is a parable about discipleship. Like you need to know which soil you are, right? Like that's how, that's the only way I've ever heard this parable taught is that it is a matter of you working to make sure that you're not the path and that you're not the rocks And for a long time, I thought that you could be in the weeds and still be okay, but you can't even be in the weeds and be okay. There's not two right ways for the seed to grow and two wrong ways. There are three failures of the seed and one triumph of the seed. And that's how I've always heard it. But that's not what Jesus is after at all. The immediate point of the parable is to explain the various reactions Jesus' disciples have seen to Jesus and his message. This is less about us receiving the seed. The sower is Jesus. Jesus has gone out and it seems indiscriminately shared the good news of the kingdom of God. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's done miracles. He's met the needs of people. And at each step along the way, he's experienced and the disciples have witnessed four reactions to Jesus. Each of the four soil types they have seen play out in the lives of those who have come near to Jesus as he ministered. They have seen the ones who Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. They've seen the ones who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy, but end up with no root. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. They've begun to see those who have embraced the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things are going to enter in and choke the word out. The parable of the sower, in one sense, shows that by and large, Jesus will be misunderstood and ultimately rejected that will lead him to the cross. Jesus is the sower and the seed has gone out. And Jesus hasn't been wasteful. Jesus has sown the seed of the kingdom and he has allowed people to experience and respond to him in one of four ways. But the parable of the sower is also meant to show how inauspicious and underwhelming the coming of the kingdom of God can appear in its beginning. If you just read that parable and three out of the four seeds fail, it seems like an overwhelming failure on the part of the sower, right? I mean, if you hit 250, you can't hang around in the major leagues very long. If you fail at three out of the four things that you routinely try in your life, you're not going to get much accomplished. And so in the immediate reading and understanding of Jesus' ministry, it can appear that the kingdom of God is a complete and total failure. Both to these men who have given up all that they've known in their life to follow Jesus and to those who are trying to figure out what to make of Jesus and his ministry, it appears that more often than not, this guy is a failure. But The seed of the kingdom of God, when it finds good soil, produces a harvest that overshadows and eventually overwhelms all that was lost in the initial stages of sowing the seed. 
James Edwards says, the parable of the sower informs and warns the disciples that although the ministry of Jesus is beset by obstacles, it will produce a harvest beyond comparison. And I think there's great comfort there for us as believers. Far greater comfort from understanding Jesus' parable in this way rather than thinking about it in terms of discipleship. It's a promise of the overwhelming bounty that the kingdom of God will produce in the world. Even though from a human perspective, it often looks like failure in the beginning. And maybe that's true for your own life and your own walk with Jesus. It looked like nothing but abject failure over and over and over again. But eventually you've seen the gospel produce in you fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold. And the goal is not, look, and also the goal is not to become a hundred fold disciple. If you experience 30 fold, 60 fold, 100 fold, this is all meant to show an abundance, an overwhelming abundance of the goodness of God poured out in the kingdom. It's not about figuring out are you a 30, a 60, or a hundred fold disciple. It's about if you are a disciple, you are part of the 30, the 60, the hundred fold blessing of God on the work and the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus is not only the sower, but he's also the lamp that comes into the house. He alone is the light that gives those who are his disciples the ability to see him and his kingdom for what they truly are. Jesus, I mean, it, it feels real cryptic when you read it like, you don't, light a, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl or put it under your bed. Well, yeah, one would burn your house down, Jesus. Like, if you put the lamp under your bed, you're burning your house down. Like, that's a terrible idea. Jesus says you put it up on a stand. And then this is what the lamp does when it's put on a stand. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying, I'm the lamp and I'm elevated. And right now you don't fully understand who I am. But the secrets of the kingdom are going to be fully understood and revealed only in the cross and the resurrection. And so throughout Jesus' life and ministry leading up to the cross, he is the light that continually pulls out of the shadows and continually pulls out the hidden motives of the heart. And he begins to display what life in the kingdom looks like versus what most people thought life as God's people looked like. And he brings them out to a point of confrontation. And so Jesus says, I'm the lamp that sits on the stand and I'm going to expose and I'm going to draw out. But you won't fully understand all of this until after I'm resurrected. James Edwards again proves a faithful guide when he says this regarding the use of the lamp analogy. The rather, the rather baffling activity of God in Jesus is like hide and seek. Only that which is first hidden can be found. Jesus is hidden in the moment the work of God in Jesus is hidden in the moment in order to be manifested. Concealment intends disclosure. The kingdom of God and the parables that witness to it are like a piece of embroidery. One side is a mass of knots and tangles, while the other is a finished pattern. So Jesus says, I'm the lamp that gives light. I bring out the things that are hidden. I root out the shadows. And for right now, as I do the work that my Father has given me, it's going to look like the knotted backside of a piece of embroidery. 
But when I'm done, when the fullness of my time has come, when my, the light of the glory of God in Jesus reaches its apex in the crucifixion and in the resurrection, then all of a sudden it all turns over. And you see the beauty and the truth of who Jesus is in his mission and the promise of his kingdom to come. But Jesus says it's not going to be all at once. It's not going to be quick arriving. And it's not even going to make sense most of the time. It's either going to look like the knotted backside of a piece of embroidery or it's going to look like three out of four seeds failing. But trust me, the work has begun, the work will be completed, and the work will be brought to its fullness and consummation. And so Jesus is inviting the disciples then and us now into a place of trust even when all around us appears like failure. This has been the story of our church for two years over two years, is trusting when from our perspective, everything has felt like a failure and everything has felt like we are not going to make it. Throughout it, we've seen Christ prove to be faithful. And there are still times we don't understand what we've experienced and how we've experienced it. But one of the things we do is we trust that we are looking at the backside of a piece of embroidery. And when it flips, And when the full light of the gospel of Jesus lands on the finished work of Restoration Church, we will look with awe and wonder at what God did in and among us. And we will join the long list of churches and congregations down through the ages who have walked faithfully in following Jesus, sowing the seed, living in the light, trusting that he will finish the work that we started. So how do we begin to guard against not drifting into becoming outsiders? The truth is hidden and meant to be revealed and disclosed only to those who pay attention to what they hear. It's prevalent in these two parables and it's going to be prevalent in the parables next week. Everything hinges on how we hear. Notice all four soils in the parable of the sower are dependent on how the gospel is heard. And here at the end of the parable of the lamp, Jesus again reiterates that his disciples will do well and those on the outside or the periphery of Jesus' ministry will do well to pay attention to what they hear. Are they hearing Jesus in an in one ear and out the other transaction, a passing interest in the life and ministry of Jesus that has no real bearing on their heart? Do they land more in line with Isaiah's declaration or God's declaration through Isaiah that they would have eyes to see but not see and they would have ears to hear but not hear? How are you hearing the message of Jesus today? Or was Jesus' teaching heard with spiritual ears both then and now? Was his teaching allowing those who heard to see the reality of the kingdom with spiritual eyes? Was hearing Jesus' teaching causing him, causing those then and us now to ponder the secret of the kingdom in our hearts? And were those who were hearing Jesus' teaching seeking to apply the truths of his teaching in their own life? There are two ways we all hear. There are two ways we all listen. There are two ways we all hear. We either listen and hear because it's the polite thing to do, and we don't want to interrupt, but we don't really care what's being said. 
And when we walk away, we have no idea what we just talked about with whomever it was, be it a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a spouse, whoever, you're a coworker. We listen because it's the polite thing to do, and then we turn and we leave. And if I were to ask you immediately what you talked about, you would have a hard time telling me what, the con- what you heard less than 20 seconds ago. But then there are people that we care about. There are moments that we care about. And when we listen, we listen with the intent to remember. We listen with not only our ears, which is how we hear, but we listen with our hearts because we really do love the person talking to us. And when I listen to you with my ears and my heart, it's no longer enough to just hear what you're saying. It becomes imperative that I do something with what I've heard whether it's pray for you, whether it's follow up with you later in the week to see how things went, whether it's finding a way to cut some of my budget so that I can be generous towards you. When I hear someone both with my ears and with my heart and I love that person, I find myself compelled to act. Jesus says that's what marks the life of a disciple. You can hear my words. You can read my words. Hello, Judas Iscariot. And you can never hear them with your ears and with your heart. And you'll never be compelled to love and follow me. But if you're my disciple, you hear with your ears, you hear with your heart, and it's the Spirit of God working in us that creates in us a compulsion to want to please and serve our Savior. Not because (coughs) we're trying to earn something, but because he's already given us the secret of the kingdom. This is what James Edwards says, and I think it sums up this first section of parables well. Edwards says, and I quote, The degree to which one hears the parables, the extent to which one allows the kingdom to break upon oneself, will determine the measure of one's understanding. Those who hear, those who knock until the door is open, will find the kingdom disclosed to them. But those of hurried search, whose knock at the door of life is tentative or brief, will find a once joyous invitation to enter the kingdom, to have faded into a mirage of disbelief. Understanding the kingdom of God, then, is not a human ability, but a capacity created by Jesus within the heart of a believer, end quote. So then, let us pray for perseverance in the face of failure as we follow Jesus' example to sow. Let us pray bold prayers for an ever-increasing harvest as we sow seed that by God's grace lands on good soil. Let us pray for an ever-increasing knowledge of the kingdom as we read and hear God's word. Let us pray for deepening joy as we spend our lives as disciples in service to our Savior and King who have heard his words not only with our ears but with our heart and are compelled to follow him in faithful, joyful obedience. Jesus alone is worth it all, and it's in his name that we pray. Let's pray.